Okay, welcome back everybody. My name is Moya Carey and I'm the curator for the Iranian collections here at um, the Asian department of the V&A. Can everybody hear me okay? And please let me know if my voice isn't picking up. <clears throat> well, today's, or this afternoon's session is entitled Engaging Audiences. What do you want your Islamic art to do? And I feel I sort of owe you an elaboration on the slightly glib tone of that um, subheading. We took up a slightly provocative um, tone in the subheading in order to just rem to remind ourselves to acknowledge all the various agencies at play when Islamic art collections are put on display in Britain in the 21st century. We have institutional histories and mandates to deal with, curatorial attempts at intellectual independence, <laughs> education policies which respond to media characterizations, diverse audiences seeking to understand current geopolitics, perhaps seek some respite from unfair media hype. Now, we hoped that the two recent articles which we, we recommended, but which were sort of forced reading, the Chateaunaoui and Roxburgh articles, we hoped that these might initiate some conversations and hopefully arguments just to make it interesting. Now, theirs are certainly not the last words in reassessing this subject, but it might be interesting to observe that the question of exhibiting Islamic and or Middle Eastern art and or culture in the 21st century is one which is now engaging art historians and anthropologists as well as journalists and other soft power advocates. Now I think it's fair to say that 99% of the room works in a museum and is responsible for the collections of material culture put together in the 19th and 20th centuries with acquisition motives and budgets which we may no longer hold in the 21st century. The 19th century network of science and art museums had a specific agenda to improve industrial design within Britain and collected accordingly, as we've already discussed this morning. So designed objects required not exactly for their historical cultural context, but for their compatibility with the 19th century aesthetic concept. Such collections were not formed to offer a history of Islamic art, but instead they give us a history of Victorian taste in league with colonial opportunity and buying power. None of our collections are universal but are filtered selections which reveal subjective interests and perspectives. And after enough time, 100 years later, these selections might look a bit dated and certainly are ripe for some interesting um, institutional self-analysis and critique. We might acknowledge this museum tourism about acquisition strategy. We only collect what interests us or concerns us in our time. What seems to concern the 21st century so far is the museum's new role as a cultural mediator or a contact zone as a bridge of understanding in a cruel time of conflict and fear. This is not always offered by the institution itself, but the current media reaction to many Islamic art exhibitions, which the two articles explain, I think, is often depressingly single-minded. Art is characterised as the aesthetic antidote to violent extremism, and certainly these have been genuinely traumatic times. Uh, an American anthropologist um, memorably said that aesthetics is sometimes an anaesthetic of history. But I think rather than talk about the antidote, you know, a cure seems a bit unrealistic and an aesthetic seems a bit depressing. But to see aesthetics somehow treated as painkiller for um, what's going on at the moment. David Roxburgh has analysed the extent to which this new role has transformed the display of Islamic art in the 21st century, suggesting that it has diverted public exhibitions away from genuine cultural investigation. He mourns the elision of emergent and complex field of Islamic art history into simplistic generalizations about beauty and unity throughout time, designed to address contemporary concerns of geopolitics rather than the specifics of cultural history, which is, of course, very long. Chateaunaoui's conclusion is that um, 
new aesthetic generalizations tend to support the very model that produced the cultural conflict in the first place. Observing the same trend, um, I was sort of refer again to the anthropologist talking about how aesthetics is, serves um, as an anesthetic. This was a comment really which was aimed at American museums and she noted that contemporary Middle Eastern artwork, writing in 2008, so recently enough, was generally how it was exhibited to American museum visitors. Islam sometimes, maybe usually, only featured in not particularly positive, specific ways designed to soothe an anxious Western palate by demonstrating maybe critique of extremism, or by embracing a preferred moderate model of Islam, which secular Westerners could just about deal with, such as private personal spirituality. And Sufism is a good example because it has attracted sort of Western interest for such, so for a century at least. Collective spirituality and devotion might be more difficult issues for Western museum goers, but we have seen since then that with the right curators, this can be handled beautifully, as in the Hajj exhibition at the British Museum. This session is designed around audiences, and I think it's worth asking whether, you know, just to cheer us up, um, let's consider that Britain might be one of the best places in the world in which to curate Islamic collections. There are truly diverse audiences here, sophisticated, global, informed and curious, whether they're Muslim or non-Muslim, newly arrived, second generation, long resident. It's a really good um, public. And the peculiarly shrill quality of tabloid invective in this country also demands heavyweight engagement from cultural institutions. The British colonial legacy explains the presence of historic collections throughout the country. Far more than universities and newspapers can, museums are very well placed to engage with this emotional baggage because they are the physical repositories of the shared material heritage. Both heritage and baggage have to be shared because, of course, there's more of it to come. Um, so I'd like to welcome uh, our first speakers. And, well, Kaiser, we've met this morning from her lovely keynote address. And Venetia scarcely needs introduction. Venetia Porter is the curator for, of Islamic and modern Middle Eastern art at the British Museum. And Kaiser, uh, also at the British Museum, is project curator for the Faith in Islam Zayed National Museum project. And their paper, their joint presentation, is exhibiting the Hajj at the British Museum concept and visitor reactions. So please welcome them. Thank you, um, Moya, and for the kind words on, on Hajj, and uh, thank you VNA, wonderful colleagues, um, and the Arts Council for this fantastic initiative. And I really hope that um, this is going to be the first of uh, of many, because I'm certainly getting a huge amount um, out of this. Um, so, um, in the next uh, seven minutes, as I think I've um, been allowed. I've got my watch here. Um, I want to try and get across um, the overall concepts and aims of the exhibition, some of the key messages within it, the types of objects we displayed, and some of the reactions of our visitors. Um, the exhibition did get a very, very high percentage of Muslim visitors, and Kaiser will look in detail um, at the work that went into achieving that before we actually started. Um, but just briefly, wh why did we choose Hajj? Well, um, it was in fact sort of a bit of an accident, really, I think, probably. Um, it was um, 
there was a series of exhibitions, spiritual journeys, and they were looking for a third because at that time the director liked doing exhibitions in threes. Um, and uh, so we had um, the uh, Book of the Dead, Ancient Egypt, and then we had Medieval Pilgrimage um, ex ex exhibition. And thinking about a third, well, Hajj came up as a topic that um, it appeared hadn't actually been done before. And that was what really surprised me, which was when I was asked to do it, was to realize that actually, um, although there had been um, extremely good but small exhibitions about Hajj, very quite narrowly focused, a sort of an overall look at it um, had, not been, had not been done. And um, we realised right from the beginning that the story um, had to be as much about the past as about the present, um, and that we had to somehow find a way of intermingling the two. One of our absolute key messages was that of the five pillars of Islam, it's the one that you cannot at all get a sense of if you are not a Muslim, you haven't been there. And that to broaden one's understanding of Islam, you need to be able to understand what the Hajj is. Um, and we wanted um, people to feel that they were actually there. And so we came up with a sort of a, um, a number of different ways to, to do that. So for those of you who came to the exhibition, this was the, the entrance. Um, and I think um, what we had was this sound, which I hope... So we didn't have the image, but we had the sound. So we wanted in particular the, the talbiyah, this is the talbiyah, which is um, the uh, words that Muslims will, will utter when they arrive at Mecca for, for Hajj. And it's been done very beautifully as sort of part of chants and so on. But we, what we wanted was the real sound. We wanted to hear the voices of those actual people who were there. And what was very gratifying was that people who'd been on Hajj would say um, that actually they could, they could feel that they were there. And we had the adhan as well, the call to prayer. And we particularly got the adhan from Mecca. That was very, very important. So we did try, um, thanks to Kaisra, cannot thank her enough for her participation in this project, wonderful co-curator to have. Um, uh, we wanted people to, to feel that um, experience. We wanted people to feel um, that people were coming from all over the world for this journey, um, and also that people were going from across the UK. There are 25,000 um, Muslims who go on Hajj every year. And we did a huge amount of research um, to, to get photographs and so on. And our photographer, <laughs> Dudley, went to the Hajj terminal um, and he got completely obsessed by the feet <laughs> of, the, of the pilgrims. Um, so I just wanted to show you, show you those. Um, one of the other key messages was that it was very clear that this was an exhibition for Muslims and non-Muslims. Uh, and one of the ways of, um, of, of introducing that was really to talk about Abraham and the unifying role of Abraham as the person, the prophet, who is revered by the three monotheistic religions. And this was the, the text that you saw um, within the introduction. So the, we decided on a very simple structure. Um, there was the preparation, the journey, the being there, being at Mecca, the rituals of Hajj, um, and then 
um, being a haji, what that meant, the objects that you um, brought back with you that Kastra has talked about um, and, uh, and so on. And so in our preparation um, journey, we were mixing um, these um, older objects with modern objects. So Kuliyat of Saadi, pilgrims quarrelling on the Hajj, Saadi's telling the pilgrims, please stop quarrelling because actually you're embarked on a spiritual journey. We had the Ihram. Um, people were amazed that we actually had the flip-flops um, there. And then we had this sort of enormous map on the, on the, on the wall. Um, and the, the map actually uh, focused on these five main journeys. Um, you would not believe, well, all of, you, all of you who work in museums know how incredibly complex maps are now in, the, <laughs> in, in our very complicated world. Um, so the, um, the journey, there were five routes with the British route right at the end of the exhibition. So we had people coming from, um, from Timbuktu, from Kufa, the earliest route, from Istanbul, from across the Indian Ocean. And here's a kind of smattering of, of objects from all of these routes. And then we had um, arriving in Mecca, we had a road sign that was done for us by an, an artist, which made the very important point that actually non-Muslims cannot go um, beyond a certain radius. Um, and it has always been thus. And so within this section, we had... Um, we had depictions of the Kaaba. We explained what it was, all the different places within it. Um, we also had a seven-minute film, which was which was um, taken from um, this this major film, which was called uh, the Travels of Ibn Battuta, and we cut it down to seven minutes. So these are some of the objects. And then the last section was um, the sort of the being of Haji pilgrimage certificate, Medina. A uh, lot of debate. Where should we put Medina? Um, hours, actually, of debate on that one before, after. Anyway, we ended for after. And the nice thing is that we had a bench there and people would always sort of like meet each other in Medina. It was very nice. Um, and so... Uh, all these different kinds of objects. So in terms of the objects, it was very clear that we, as I said at the beginning, that we needed to have um, a whole different range of objects in order to tell this story, which is about, about the past and the present, and that they all had to have equal weight, in a sense. So um, we, we were very, very fortunate in getting some extraordinary loans. Um, so uh, the Ma'al Quran, Hijazi Quran from the British Library, the Makamat of Hariri, which, um, which are extraordinary objects. But then also in the exhibition, you had the Thomas Cook pilgrimage ticket, you had the, 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 um, the razor um, that is used uh, for Fa'id. Um, you had a child's diary. That child's diary there, Selina's diary, was in fact the most popular um, object in the exhibition. It was cited again and again. And the story of that was so wonderful, which was was that when we had the, the first um, press uh, conference about Hajj, um, Selina's mother phoned me up and said, well, we went on Hajj um, last year and our little daughter, Selina, was eight or nine at the time and she did a diary. Would you like it for the exhibition? I mean, imagine, what a gift. Um, and so, of course, uh, yes, we, we did. We included it. Um, what everybody loved in the exhibition was the contemporary art also. So along with Selina's diary, this was one of the most iconic um, images of the, of the exhibition, one of the most iconic objects. It was a tiny little magnet um, done by, with iron filings done by Ahmed Mata, Saudi artist. Um, and when you looked at it close, this is what you saw. So it became a kind of emblem um, of Hajj in a sense, that, that magnetic power of Mecca. Now... Um, the, as I mentioned, um, 
we did have a very, very high proportion of Muslim visitors. We didn't actually know, really, um, that we were going to get them. Um, Kaiser will talk about all the, you know, the work that went to achieving that. Um, but what we found was that as the exhibition progressed, we just got more and more Muslim visitors. And you'll see some of these... Um, some of these texts, which are um, extracts from the um, evaluation. Um, and so you'll see, you know, they offered, they, but people commented on the diverse nature of the, the audience. Um, I'm not going to read all this, you can read it for skim read there. What we also had, we decided um, to have visitors' books, and we started them in the second week of the exhibition. By the end of the exhibition, it was a very short run, the exhibition, just under three months. Um, we had 10 visitors' books, and by the end, we were replacing them every week. It was really extraordinary. And these are the kinds of comments. And we, what we also had was huge numbers of children, although we'd been told by the exhibitions department that this wasn't going to be an exhibition that children would come to. Um, but anyway, we surprised them. Um, so you'll see the kinds of comments um, that we had. Exhibition is one step forward into improving the way Islam is presented. This is something that we've touched on um, early, early on. Um, uh, then this helped me value my Christian faith. I thought comments like this were actually very, very Im important. These kinds of comments. Sorry, I don't really have, I think I've got another minute. Um, and what we what we had in terms of these Muslim visitors, one of the work the work the, the part of the work that we did, something we hadn't done before at the British Museum, which was to really uh, do something very active on the website, and we actually called for Hajj stories. And you just have to listen to him; he's our favourite. I went three months ago with my dad, my mom, my brother, and my other brother and my sister, and my cousin, and my um, auntie, and my uncle, and my grandma, and my other cousin. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and... That was really, really extraordinary. We got a lot of these stories. But before um, I just hand over to Castro, what I want to say, just finally, is that there is a legacy after, after Hajj. Um, so there are two things you will see on there. There's a job advert that's just come, come out, um, which is that we're looking for somebody uh, to help actually pull together all the legacy of, of Hajj. <coughs> all these hundreds of photographs and interviews and you know, editing, helping me edit conference proceedings and all of that. But, so that's one thing. But actually, very interestingly, um, the British Museum has come up with the idea of a sort of intellectual property package so, so for the Hajj exhibition because we realised very early on that we'd never be able to tour it. It was far too complicated. There were 40 different lenders. And so um, two institutions now have taken up this idea of taking from us literally the structure, the intellectual property, the introductions to collections, all the hundreds of photographs that we collected as part of our research and doing it in their own way. So the two institutions who are doing this are Leiden in the Netherlands, and we borrowed a lot of material from them, and Doha, um, the Museum of Islamic Art in, in Qatar, and I'm there to, to, to help them, and I've already had you know really interesting visit to Leiden to actually see how they can take that story and work with their audiences, because they have huge problems with Islamophobia and, and that sort of thing. They're looking for, for something um, sort of pos positive and interesting to, to do, and in Doha, it'll be very interesting to see how they reposition it for um, their own audiences. So I'll now hand over to Kaisra. Thank you. <laughs>
Okay, um, what I'll try and do in the, the next five minutes is um, try and summarise um, uh, how we approached uh, Muslim communities in the UK. Um, as Venetia mentioned, although the scope of the exhibition was for Muslims and non-Muslims, uh, we realised a lot of work needed to be done in bringing Muslim communities and getting their buy-in on this exhibition right from the very start. Um, and what we effectively tried to do was mobilise the Muslim community from around the UK to attend the exhibition. So our research into communities began with a visit to see the senior advisor of Muslim communities at DCLG, the Department of Communities and Local Government, on recommendation of the FCO. Um, he discussed with me at the very start the nuances of the Muslim community, explaining how difficult it really is to understand it. Uh, Maksud Ahmed, uh, the advisor, and I began by discussing the organisations which would be useful for us to be in contact with, but more importantly, how they would be useful and how they operated within the UK. These organisations included umbrella Muslim organisations, charities, mosques, community centres, uh, names of individuals, communities to focus on, such as the Afghan and Somali communities, and other, um, including specific Hajj organisations, of which the two ABH, CBH, were the most important. Um, how, they how they operated, sometimes in competition with each other, sometimes in tandem, wasn't always easy to grasp. Um, there was politics to understand, as well as cultural and religious differences. Um, so we put a, together a list, which was not an exhaustive list, but a start. Um, and importantly, he and I discussed which organisations to avoid, uh, which was very, very important from my perspective. Um, these were organisations, which I won't mention here, um, that he uh, that the British Museum would be best um, to avoid, um, not in any real sinister way, but best to keep um, at, at arm's length. Every organisation that the museum was in contact with was scrutinised both by him and me. Um, I should note that these organisations are so-called Muslim organisations which base their existence on the connection to Islam. So we then developed a system of connecting, contacting and connecting with these groups. Spreadsheets were put together of these organisations and between my own research and Maksud's, managed to pull together a list that marketing communities and myself uh, were able to um, go about contacting. It wasn't always a sensitive relationship, generally positive, um, and I was certainly involved in any new meetings um, or discussions. Uh, with our communities group, it was a matter of uh, which ones we could best work with and how to reach uh, these communities on many different levels, um, including different levels of society. So from your Muslim professional, um, of which there are many wealthy and affluent ones in London, to other charitable organisations in less affluent parts of London, uh, for example. The emphasis for me, I guess, was generally on non-Arab speaking nationalities, Bangladesh, Pakistan, Afghan, Somali. Um, this bias was based on the UMEC report, the Understanding Muslim Ethnic Communities, and figures from the 2001 census, which stated that 69% of the UK Muslim community are from the Indian subcontinent. Uh, we held meetings with the main groups, um, ABH, the Association of British Hujaj, Al-Manar at Westbourne Park Mosque, MCB, Regents Park Cultural Centre, etc., each of which had feedback and lots of, and lots of advice, um, especially in terms of marketing, content, language, schools, etc., sometimes funding, uh, but all of who fully backed the project and the outreach initiative. Mostly, they agreed to promote the exhibition on their websites, send email shots, and also have flyers at their premises. Um, these groups were the main groups chosen based on their reach and also their prominence. Contact with, was made with other organisations 
organisations and the process became quite organic. Um, communities made headway with some of the organisations not approached before and those we generally work with on um, a local level. Josephine mentioned uh, the Mary Ward Centre and also the then Mayor uh, and Leader of Camden Council who were of Bangladeshi origin. Um, marketing made great way with Living Islam and we saw the clip of um, uh, the, the, the great clip where the little boy's talking about um, uh, and he's talking from Living Islam, which is um, an ISB, the, uh, the Islamic Society of Britain's initiative. It's the largest Muslim family festival of faith, entertainment and spirituality, which is held in Lincolnshire um, every, other couple, uh, every other year. Um, it was my first presentation given on the Hajj to an audience of 2,000 people. Um, this then extended to a UK-wide appeal. Heads became clear and the active members of the community also became clear. And there were ones that ended up having continued contact with us, such as the Muslim Civil Service Network, for example. Um, and marketing also then offered promotions such as rail tickets, etc., for people to be able to come from all around the UK. I will have to say, however, that by far the most powerful tool was word of mouth as well as social media. Twitter became a fascinating thing for me. Never been involved with Twitter before, but uh, had a few very interesting conversations. Um, and Facebook, as well as Muslim media. Um, those um, from um, Al Jazeera to Islam Channel were in interested in covering the exhibition. Uh, many of the most useful contacts were those that uh, from uh, professional city firms. Uh, being a former city professional, I knew them well. Um, and it's an interesting factor that diversity initiatives in corporate firms allowed for tighter networking opportunities. And this, th those types of people came in to learn and to be seen and in order to network, which is very interesting. Um, although I would also be interested in knowing exactly um, how those networks work and how they, they gather their information and, and communicate with each other. Uh, schools were also a, a huge part of this and faith schools um, were, and, uh, were approached as well as um, Muslim teachers from organisations and umbrella organisations of uh, Muslim teachers and Hajj being part of the national curriculum it was a, a very interesting uh, thing to see so many children here and you can see some in the photographs. Um, I'll just touch briefly on miscellaneous or other factors which I thought were quite interesting. Um, one of them being um, mosques. Um, we did um, send letters to um, every single mosque in the UK, but we didn't do this directly. We did this through um, the Association of British Hujaj, which was one of our umbrella Hajj organisations, in, in order to almost remove oneself from a direct conversation, especially since, um, especially since it can be a very, very sensitive topic. Uh, we also had um, a temporary prayer room, which was widely used, which was very interesting. Um, and also, uh, we realised that language wasn't uh, completely a barrier to people coming in and understanding. There was a, a very interesting um, visit by um, somebody, uh, uh, a journalist at The Guardian, who brought his mother in, who didn't speak a word of English, but came out at the end of the exhibition feeling quite emotional about it. Um, also, in terms of this exhibition, Hajj traffic itself was an important element. Travel agents, as well as Hajj med medical clinics and trade standards authority were very important. And they did a lot of um, marketing for us. So after all of the, all the organisations were contacted and we allowed them to be able to communicate with each other, in the end, there was a large number of groups which, um, who helped us to promote the exhibition, um, also including Shia groups. Um, so the real sense of unity, I think, was uh, apparent um, and it was quite amazing from my point of view. Um, and we also, um, just 
touch to touch upon very quickly um, access and um, we had um, a number of uh, deaf Muslim groups come in and also parliamentary activity parliamentary activity um, we had quite a few MPs and um, councillors who are very interested in the exhibition so um, in a nutshell um, those groups really helped to bring those uh, bring some of these audiences in and uh, largely um, the feedback was very very positive Thank you very much, both Now, our next speaker is, oh, before I announce our next speaker, we're going to follow the same format we had this morning, which is that we'll run our papers back to back, and then I'll invite all the speakers to come back up and sit in a row, and we'll sort of direct our questions um, at the end. So I'd like to invite Salma Tuka to come up. She's the curator for Contemporary Middle East here at the V&A, and um, also the curator of the Jim Prize. And Sam is going to be speaking to us about the Jamil Prize and provide us with an overview of the origins and aims of the prize. Do I just play? should just be the next slide. Should be the next one. Yeah. Thanks, Maya. Um, well, I wanted to use this opportunity to tackle some of the challenges that we faced um, that we faced in establishing the Jamil Prize, which is now going into its third year, and how we've tried to shape the identity of the prize. So just as an overview, um, the Jamil Prize is a biannual award for contemporary artists and designers inspired by Islamic traditions of art, craft and design. Um, it was inaugurated in 2009, a few years after the foundation of the Jamil Gallery of Islamic Art, as a platform for contemporary artists and designers. Um, just to reiterate, it's a global prize, so it's open to artists and designers from any nationality, any age group and any religious background. The prize is run by nomination only, so we invite nominators from all over the world and different sorts of backgrounds to submit a list of five artists and designers that they feel fulfilled the criteria. And from these submissions, we invite these artists and designers to apply. For the Jamil Prize 2013, we received our highest ever number of submissions, 185 from countries ranging from the US, uh, the UAE, India, Afghanistan, uh, Kazakhstan, Spain, China, Pakistan, Brazil, and, and much more. An independent panel of judges is appointed every two years to determine the shortlisted artists and designers from the applications. And in the past, we've had uh, judges such as Venetia Porter, um, the designer Thomas Heatherwick, um, artist Janan Elani, and Wassan Al-Qadiri, who's the past director of Metaf in Doha. The shortlisted artists' work form part of an exhibition which opens first at the V&A and subsequently goes on an international tour. The, the Jamil Prize 2009 toured to the Middle East, North Africa and Turkey. The 2011 prize has been and will be on tour in Europe and the United States. And we are currently looking for possible venues for the 2013 prize. In asserting and shaping the identity of the prize, we frequently had misconceptions or false labels used for the prize. At first, many saw the prize as a dialogue between East and West rather than the global platform which the prize is intended to be. And the other label which is sometimes used is that the prize is for contemporary Islamic art or directed at contemporary Islamic artists. In the museum, we can test both these terms and we found that they can be quite problematic for many reasons. 
Firstly, many artists, um, as we've heard from some of the comments earlier, don't necessarily want to be referred to as Islamic artists because of the obvious implications that the content of the work itself is religious or relates to the artist's own faith. The inspiration for the prize is, of course, Islamic art, but the prize itself awards contemporary art and design. There are many artists and designers using the techniques of Islamic art, irrespective of an association with religious implications. We also feel that the term contemporary Islamic art is very misleading. The term Islamic art was originally coined by Western academics and museums to cover the study of anything produced in lands <coughs> under Islamic rule and generally refers to a historical genre which ends with the end of the Ottoman Empire. However, it seems that the phrase or label contemporary Islamic art has been coined as it provides an, an easy categorization. It also may be because many commentators don't fully understand the concept of what Islamic art is in the first place. For this reason, we have modeled the prizes criteria as inspiration from Islamic traditions of art, craft, and design. Um, we also feel that unlike many forums which place the power of the in the hands of the curator, the Jamil Prize turns this on its head by reinvesting the power back into the hands of the artists and designers. It is them who are given the opportunity to define or offer their interpretations on this question of Islamic art. And in contrast to nationality-driven criteria, the prize explores the relationship between tradition and contemporary work as part of a wider debate about Islamic culture and its role today. Connections, instead, are made based on tradition, heritage, craft, and design, as well as the significance of the process. The works demonstrate how dynamic Islamic tradition can be and how complex and eloquent the art and design inspired by this tradition has become. The variety of thought and ingenuity broadens the audience's minds by making them question their own notions of Islamic and pro proving that this can be engaging, very forward-thinking and relevant today. All of the artists and designers who are recognized by the Jamil Prize share an awareness, respect and sensitivity to these Islamic traditions. Although the artist's work, in, uh, although the artist's works are very distinct. There are several unifying influences present in the work of a number of the artists that were shortlisted for the 2011 prize. And one of these was the influence of Sufism. Widely considered the inner mystical dimension of Islam, Sufism is often defined as a science whose objective is the reparation of the heart and turning it away from all else but God. The geometric patterns and forms of Munir Shahrudi Farman Fameyan's work refers to the spiritual geometries of Islamic architecture, particularly the, mo the mosaics connecting all shapes with spiritual attributes as describes the tenets of Sufism. Central to Farman Fameyan's work is the technique of mirror mosaic used for architectural decoration in Iran since the 1600s, in which pieces of mirror are cut to shape and set in plaster. They are combined with other elements, including pieces of reverse glass, um, painted glass in a style popular in the 1800s. Similarly, Hadiya Shafi's inspiration is also derived from the movements of Sufi mystics. <coughs> Sufis use the language of love to describe humanity's relationship with God and move beyond everyday concerns by perfecting repetitive practices. The language of love is reflected in Shafi's scroll works, as is the whirling dervish dance performed by some Sufis. The artist painstakingly prints or writes the word love in Persian onto thousands of paper strips, rolls them up tightly and slides them within a frame. 
The Algerian artist and the winner of the 2011 prize, Rashid Qureshi's work, is informed by numerology, science, and ethos of Sufi mysticism. For him, the great Sufi thinkers and poets of the past show a sophistication and tolerance that are worthy of emulation today. Qureshi believes that implementing these ideas would revive Islam's artistic legacy and give new status to the craftsman, whose way of working preserves traditions that are barely understood. The Invisible Master series is a series of banners that each celebrates the lives and legacies of the 14 great masters of Sufism. Islamic art is often an essentially utilitarian discourse. The objects and designs that we associate with this term tend to have a specific purpose and function in addition to their beauty. Um, the function of the object and, and its decoration were con conceptualized harmoniously. With this in mind, the integral role that craft and design have played in Islamic art history is recognized and put into context through the rubric of the prize's criteria. In selecting Jamil Prize nominees, the values of craft and design are scrutinized in, work, in the work of each artist, and focus is put on how they translate those values into a contemporary context. Thus, craft and design are placed on a par with art through the prize. Materials and technique are fundamental factors in the production of Islamic art, as is the significance of the process itself. The Jamil Prize continues to stress the importance of these traditions and the ingenuity of the human hand. This can be seen in the work of all the Jamil Prize 2011 shortlisted artists. Bita Ghazaleya's Felt Memory series, for instance, was inspired by the felt tunics worn by nomads in southwest Iran to protect themselves from the harsh conditions and climate. These garments are known for their fire-resistant and cold-resistant qualities, the process of felt making is physically extremely challenging. Once the wet dyed wool is laid out, the felters need to work into the rolled mass by padding it out with their bare feet. They then set about rolling and unrolling the felt before rubbing it smooth. The labor intensive process of getting the felt to its optimum thickness takes more than three hours. In the process of creating the work, each felt garment takes around one day to make and Rezelea spends a further two months on the designs of the garment. These incorporate symbols of resistance, protection, and martyrdom for an Iranian um, post-revolution pop culture. Again, we see a collision of tradition and contemporary significance. Similarly, when, we, when looking at the work um, Kashmiri Shawl by Pakistani artist um, Aisha Khalid, the sheer magnitude of time taken to produce the piece is clear to the viewer. <coughs> The cashmere cloth is pierced with 300,000 gold-plated pins, which create a traditional paisley pattern. The process itself of placing the pins one by one to build up the pattern took around 16 hours for 40 days. Khalid sees the intensive handmade process as something that involves your heart and states that the sharp pins symbolize the agony of the people in occupied Kashmir. It is also interesting that the act of producing the shawl is a social activity. In Kashmir and rural areas of Pakistan, women work together on the embroidery of these textiles, sharing their news, problems, and life stories as they work. This emphasizes that the tradition is not reserved solely for history and is very much woven into everyday life. By incorporating them into their work, the artists emphasize the relevance of these traditions in society, as well as imbuing them with a new meaning through their work. 
Canadian artist of Iranian heritage, Babak Golkar, takes the nomadic carpet as the ground plan or base for architectural models made to scale. This imagined world is traditional in plan and modernist in elevation. And seen from the side, the model cityscape seems to grow out of the carpet and viewed from above, it collapses into it again. Golkar creates a kind of harmony in these constructions where the old represented in the carpet is cast into the future. He talks about the moment of alchemy when the piece transforms from, transforms from two-dimensional to three-dimensional and back again before the viewer's eyes. Golkar finds a way to draw together in a single work several aspects of opposing traditions, antiquity and modernity, ornament and minimalism. The youngest artist in the 2011 shortlist, Nur Ali Chagani from Pakistan, uses his training in Mughal miniature painting to create his sculptural works. Chagani uses miniature handmade bricks to symbolize the dot used in miniature painting to build up the image. When the bricks are taken together in this way, they form a miniature grid and turn three-dimensional. Although Chagani's work is very modern, there is a feeling that one is looking at a precious ancient relic about to crumble under the weight of centuries. In the hands of the Jamil Prize 2011 artist, material becomes as important as the concept behind the work. Whereas traditionally, some of these materials, such as brick, glass, mirror and carpets, were used to embellish objects, buildings or interior spaces, the materials now become the subject of the work. Decoration is reassessed, revived and imbued with a new meaning. The prize as such places immense value on skill and the importance of the handmade rather than solely on conceptual content. And just to finish, um, I wanted to mention that the judges have met recently to determine the 2013 Jamil Prize artists and, and designers, and the shortlist will be announced next March. Um, we have noticed that the prize is growing in scale and international recognition, and as such, we will be moving the Jamil Prize 2013 to a much larger space, the Porter Gallery. So I, I look forward to welcoming you all next December for the Jamil Prize 2013. Thank you. Thank you very much, Salma. We've got AV, you're going to get our next speaker's presented. Here he comes, here he comes again. Um, our next speaker is Muhammad Ali. He's a street artist who combines spiritual messages which connect with people of different faith. And his talk is entitled Sacred Street Art, which gives us the artist's point of view, something we need today, um, exploring the relationship between spirituality, identity, and urban space. And we will just get everything ready and then welcome him. Do you want to just show the film first? Yeah. We often talk about change. I wanted to bring about change, social change. But actually, should we not start within ourselves first, perhaps? Should we not, as Gandhi said, be the change that you wish to see in the world? So that kind of change taking place within ourselves, and then how that has impact upon kind of wider society. ourselves before we change our condition and how that is something which is actually linked. If there is righteousness in the heart, there will be beauty in the character. If there is beauty in the character, there will be harmony in the heart. If there is harmony in the heart, there will be order in the nation. 
projects manager at the Awali Centre for the Study of Islam in the Contemporary World at the University of Edinburgh. Heard about Muhammad Ali's work and we're a big fan of his work. He's done a lot of work down in England, but we thought it was about time he, he maybe did something in Scotland. And uh, so after negotiations and talking to Muhammad, we finally got him here. And uh, the idea of the mural really is to celebrate Islam in Scotland. Because uh, Scotland's a nation that is very proud of its kind of multicultural uh, heritage, you know. There's all sorts of different faiths and cultures up here in Scotland. And Islam is, is, is by far the biggest minority faith tradition in Scotland. And I think, you know, Islam represents a really important thread in that time that makes up Scottish society. And the idea of this mural was to celebrate that and to say, you know, Islam has been in Scotland for years and is, is a celebrated and vital part of Scottish society. Morana is very impressed uh, when he saw it and especially when he saw the Salaam. Uh, and he said it is mean and peace uh, on all of us and uh, he's quite uh, thrilled to see it. It's amazing to see this big part here. People walking past look at this and you feel it's a positive image and a building bridge between the two communities and that's why it's, it's a very important part of Edinburgh. Nothing like this happened in Edinburgh before. It's a big thing for Edinburgh. I just think it's fantastic that the mosque are reaching out to the community in this way and saying we are here. Peace to you and we are part of Scotland. I was sitting in a Friday prayer in a mosque in um, Birmingham, inner city part of Birmingham, and I heard the announcement, this is following on from the great British Museum, you know this story, right? British Museum, the Hajj exhibition. And I was there listening to quite a mundane sermon. And after the sermon they announced, they said, there's a bus going from Birmingham to, for all the elders here in the congregation, there's about a thousand people there to see the British Museum's Hajj exhibition. And I suddenly sat up and I thought, this is something I've never heard before here in a mosque, at the end of a sermon. And there was a bus that would go to the exhibition, followed by a visit to Regent's Park Mosque, followed by dinner, yeah? For elders only, they specifically said you have to be, I think the age was 45 plus or something like that, <laughs> right? But it was quite surreal to hear. It was beautiful to hear, in fact, um, to hear such an announcement in a Friday sermon like that. And um, it really kind of um, quite touched me, actually, that the fact that they were making the effort to, you know, a subsidized rate to take, take the elders of the community to see this fantastic exhibition. And I remember when I was here at the exhibition myself, I bumped into one of the elders from the community, and we caught him on film because I was making a, a short film uh, about, about the exhibition at that time. And we interviewed him and he said, because my heart was pounding when I came into the exhibition. Um, and when I saw some of the artifacts, my heart was pounding. Those were his words. An elderly person who's probably never stepped foot in a museum before in his life, right? And I thought, Surely this is something that we should be trying to achieve, 
where his heart was pounding. These are the kind of emotions, the reactions we should be really striving for, where we can create this type of feeling in somebody. It's important, I think, before I go into the presentation, um, it's important, I think, about connecting people, connecting with people who perhaps have, we often fall up, out of our radars, who are often kind of forgotten about sometimes, yeah? And engaging with them. I remember bringing my children, I'm still talking, the Hajj exhibition again. My children, really, just seeing my children run around, sorry, by the way, <laughs> six years old, uh, yeah, running around and just looking at the artifacts. She recognizes these, the, the big black, the Kaaba itself and some of the artifacts. And it was beautiful and just refreshing for me, something that I never had when I was born and raised in, in, in England, in the city of Birmingham, to be able to see this in the museum on such a grand scale as well and see the, just those comments I was reading on the screen from the children, that's how my children responded, how they reacted. So I can say certainly from a community, community perspective, it was powerful. It was really, really powerful. And I, I hope we can build upon the great work that the British Museum, Venetia and Kaisera did. Taking art into the community and engaging with people is something I'm passionate about. Being a street artist, a graffiti artist, if you like, whatever term you'd like to, to give me as an urban artist, if you want. Um, it's important about, for me, bringing art to the people and, and bringing that experience to the people, whether it's you taking the art to them or whether it's you bringing, in a creative way, bringing those people into your spaces. So as a street artist, that is my ethos. It's about the art spilling outside of the conventional art spaces exhibition spaces and literally onto the streets, the colour spilling out into the concrete jungle that we exist in. And bringing people into one space because, let's face it, I read in, in some of the, the, the articles that were suggested reading, was it recommended reading? Yeah? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. 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 Um, about the clash of civilizations and this term we hear that we are kind of um, told to, to kind of um, to recognize this clash that is existing, dealing with that head on in a sense, in a very real sense as well. How do we really deal with, you know, we hear of many interfaith initiatives and community cohesion, quote unquote, initiatives. But how do we really engage? And I don't know if you could, if it, the film kind of captured that, but whether it captured a real sense of, of that cohesion, that kind of bringing together of people and connections on the street corner with the very real people that we should be, I think, everyday people that we should be attempting to connect with. So as a street artist, I, I'll just share some of the, uh, I suppose, just a bit of a journey through my own work and hoping some of this will be a benefit to you guys and you, for your own work and what you do. I, I often kind of, um, Muslim graffiti artist is what I'm described as many different labels that are out there, but actually discovering that the first graffiti artist was actually a Muslim himself, 13th century traveler, who, who said he would not visit a sacred space, both Christian and Muslim, Jerusalem, Damascus, all of these places, and he would chalk his name upon a wall, okay? So I love sharing that with the young people when I deliver workshops, because it really gives a kind of an insight into how we are part of the story we are we are voices that need to be heard by that I mean myself being um, 
you know, uh, born from my, uh, you know, a family that have migrated to the country, our voices and seeing representation, whether it's through art, whether it's in the exhibitions and the museums, whatever it might be, seeing that being recognized is, is an important part of, of human development. And if we don't have that, there's going to be some serious problems in terms of these you know, generations of young people born in this society who are struggling with their identity, with their faith, with their tradition and their culture, which may seem at kind of at odds with the kind of uh, the wider culture and traditions. I like to draw upon, and I always share this when I'm working with young Muslims in particular, and actually the opposite, sometimes I'm working with white working class communities and drawing upon some of the interesting kind of um, parallels, if you like, or inspirations that you might see, like William Morris's you know, inspiration from Islamic geometric patterns. These were surely some of the, the early graffiti artists I talk about carvings in the, the palace of the Alhambra walls. And it's something that, believe me, there are masses of people who are still very oblivious to, from within these communities who are oblivious to something which is actually part of their faith and their culture, right? And for some reason, they just don't know. They've never been. I always tell them, two hours, Ryanair, you can be there, right? <laughs> On your doorstep, okay? The Alhambra, if you haven't been, has anyone been? Yeah, yeah. And how I try to extract some of that into the concrete jungle I speak about, the ugly concrete jungles, because they are grey, very monotone. But why does it have to be that way? How do we bring colour into our spaces? Not just something of colour, but something that might have some type of alternative language, if you like, to the billboards that we are bombarded with by this product and this, this car and this designer brand something a little bit different in the public space that will contribute to how we think that can enhance our condition as society. This is kind of what I like to inject back into the public space instead of relying upon town planners and urban regeneration people to shape our city. How do we, working with them of course, I'm not suggesting we all go out at night and, <laughs> and take over the city, this is a wall, um, it's a public swimming baths that was transformed into that. Just to give you an idea of how we can transform our spaces. That complements the space as well. That takes on the colours of the sky and the surrounding colours. Rather than, much like a lot of graffiti art, which I take particular, you know, I, I'm, I'm not keen on um, cut and paste type of street art that we might see. Even in London we see so much of it, right? That actually will scream out as opposed to complement. Sometimes there might be a need for that, but I just think sometimes we have to absorb and think about the colours that we see. There's a wall in Leighton, Leighton High Road, just minutes from the Olympic Stadium, which is transformed into... You can probably recognise the Mexico 68 power salute, which very many people in the area were a bit nervous about. I was just waiting for the Olympic police to jump on me and say, what are you doing? Green Street in London, Upton Park, side of a bookstore. So the message of knowledge and seeking knowledge, something which is kind of relevant. A weapon against mass destruction. 
this was painted in a, in a neighborhood which, ha, which was a now predominantly South Asian Muslim community. But when I was growing up, the very community I was born and raised in, Sparkbrook in fact, it's called, uh, was very mixed and diverse and a large Irish community. So you can probably see the influence of Celtic patterns merged with geometric kind of Islamic patterns. And the word reads hope, by the way, uh, a weapon against despair. Bristol, I'll fly through some of these because I know we don't have lots of time. How am I doing? Okay. You probably see the scale of this wall. On the top, can you see me standing on a ladder? Do you see it in the middle of the wall? Yeah. This was the Birmingham Repertory Theatre. Um, and it was given to us before it was demolished. It's a big kind of, big live show that took place. For me as an artist, it's although kind of starting off as a, I suppose, a mural painter influenced by Islamic script and patterns. For me, kind of building upon that and, and, and becoming more than that and building experiences where people come together, there's 450 people in a sold out show. That was a kind of celebration of poetry, live art and projected video and building experiences for people. And that's kind of what I wanted to do and taking it beyond a piece of art, whether it's on a canvas or on a wall even, and bringing that and taking it into a different dimension completely. <coughs> this was a collaborative show that I choreographed um, in the city of Birmingham. Cubes, I love cubes. <laughs> this is a cube in Moscat and Oman um, that started off as a black cube and then transformed um, and, and the colour kind of unravels and around it. You, it's always interesting to watch how people kind of move around the cube. I always watch what direction they're going as well. Mm -hmm. Is it that way clockwise? Or? So these cubes are always interesting. This is in Bradford actually. We have someone from Nilesh from Cartwright Hall here, don't we? <coughs> This is in Bradford, and I love Bradford actually. Bradford's a, a great place because um, it has so many problems. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> really, I'm sorry. Yeah? No, this is where I love to do. The reason I'm still based in Birmingham, you know, when we're talking about some of the youth on, that le on the level of, in terms of social issues, these are the places where we need to be, where I need to be. There's no point preaching to the converted. So Bradford has its issues when I've been on the ground painting street corner murals or creating art like this in the, in the, in the main park there. There's issues and, and this is where I feel we need to focus our efforts. So forgive me if I've caused any insult to anyone from Bradford, but that's not what I mean, you know. It's, it's about dealing with those issues. This is in Sweden, in Gothenburg. Um, this is a live cube that I paint just a bit share with you this cube concept. This was a new Warsaw Art Gallery, but it was great to see how the diversity of the audience. It always gives me a great buzz to see a mix of different people coming into one space. What I do here, I paint on the, on the side of a cube in front of an audience and I spin it. it has an, it's on an axis and I spin it. <coughs> so you, I grab the corner and I paint it um, over a period of 20 minutes, but it's all rehearsed like I do the painting Rolf Harris style. Like, uh, for a week non-stop. I have nightmares of, of these paintings, of, these, of, the, of the images, because I have to know my lines inside out, you see, otherwise it becomes very boring to watch a live painter. But yeah, so it, bringing that visual art and kind of creating experiences that connects people and brings them together. This is something 
I'm delivering tomorrow actually, I fly to Malaysia um, as part of the World Islamic Economic Forum, um, which is a foundation based in Malaysia. It's happened for eight years in a row. And um, they've asked me to come up with a, something and I, I've been creating a, another cube, a cube that is a kind of sound and visual installation. I've called it the dream cube. Okay, and you step inside the cube for this experience. Maybe a heads up for some of you, the World Islamic Economic Forum. They are recently beginning to engage with the arts for the past five years now. So they've been really, really helpful. This is being built, this cube is being built right now as we speak, um, given the concept drawings. And as you step inside, you go into a kind of a sound and visual kind of installation. And a live young people will be writing on that back wall their visions of their future. And they will hear a sound installation about different visions and it will be very interactive. But the World Islamic Economic Forum will take place in London next year actually. So heads up for everybody, it could be quite interesting. Um, audience engagement, I mean, everyone loves an audience shot, right? Seeing a diverse group of people. This is my favorite actually, all right? <laughs> right, this is that theatre show that I mentioned. I mean, look at that, right? Fantastic. You know, literally, some of the reviews of that show we did were you had kids, hip-hop kids, hip-hop heads, alongside traditional theatre, oops, traditional theatre-goers in their 60s and 70s, with women with full face veils, guys with beards down to here, right? Muslim guys all in one space. Where do you ever see that? And this is what I'm seriously, and I've, I'd ask all of you to commit yourselves to trying to achieve that. And we see in the news debates around multiculturalism and, and the problems we have in England compared to other places. You know, commit yourselves to using, you know, whatever way you can to try and bring about that change. This is a space that we launched that I launched, I wear a few different hats, sorry. Being passionate about the arts. In inner city part of Birmingham, we took over a, a space, painted it blue, called it the hub, hub in Arabic for the word for love, but also a hub for the community. And taking art into places we don't expect, a really run down part of town, and bringing in people who would never normally go to that part of town. Oh, I've never been to Spartanbrook before. But they come to our space and we'd hold exhibitions, poetry events, etc. How can we take art into the community? How do we take it to the people if they're not gonna to come to you? Okay, so thank you for your patience. I think I'm I would like to ask all our panelists to come back, please, and take a seat. Venetia and Kato, what were your visitor figures for that? They must have been amazing. They were 140,000. 140,000. Yeah, the, the projected figure was 80,000. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, that was, that was yeah, amazing. Congratulations, that's really amazing. Um, I wanted, I mean, it was such a landmark exhibition which balanced some sort of combinations which are typically almost impossible to balance, like sort of academic focus versus sort of personal, you know, really emotional engagement with, with a, um, a subject. 
combining museum objects with contemporary memorabilia and contemporary art as sort of, I think the amazing thing about that show is how well these difficult opposites or just different um, things could be combined and how vibrantly, because of Hajj being such a complex, in a way such a simple thing as an, an annual event, but having such an incredibly long history and Islam being such a diverse world now that to, to achieve that by sort of reeling in all of the strands back to sort of the original event and then to sort of bring it forward. The, what maybe what grabbed me about the show was how much it projected into the future as well. That you got the sense that this ritual was, you know, it had a past as a present and it has, you know, a, a, a future which would just go run and run. But I wondered, you know, with all of this current and historic variety within Islamic culture and civilizations, did you have audience objections of sort of people preferring <coughs> the story to be told one way or another that you had to deal with that you'd be comfortable describing? Um, with the show? We had uh, audience objections. I mean, there were, there were certainly, there were certainly, there are always issues. Yeah. Um, I, mean, I think the, the most difficult thing was because it hadn't been done before and, and worrying about what, what to say. And, you know, every single word, you have to look at it, you know, 85 times to make sure that it's absolutely right. And yeah. even then, um, I mean, we had, we had a certain amount of criticism that there were stories that we weren't telling. Um, you Gosh, know, you can't... That's hard to win, actually. It, it's very hard to win. Um, so, for example, you know, people worried that we didn't talk about the destruction of the holy places, for, for example, but... You know, we felt that actually it was very obvious. You know, you only had to look at an old photograph and a modern photograph, yes, and it was, it was yes. Um, there were other other issues um, to do with, um, you know, should we have talked more about the Shia, for example, yeah, yeah. when they go to um, Mecca and and How Medina? You know, there there are definitely issues around mm -hmm. around that. Um, so yes, you know, one had to balance. Or all of that. I mean, in terms of the, the objects, I mean, what was difficult was that we realised very c quickly that we, it wasn't like the previous exhibition where, where it was these blockbuster objects, these mega, very glamorous objects. I mean, in a sense, ours weren't glamorous objects. I mean, each individual, you know, lots of individual beautiful objects, but that, but that actually the object and the context, the background images, the film, had to almost have equal equal weight. Yes, I think they needed um, to. They, well. need, they needed to. And, and so, in a sense, one was trying to represent all aspects of the story if we, if we possibly could. But, yeah, I mean, I think we did fail in, in certain, certain aspects. Well, because the, the sort of the physical material culture is only a fraction of the power yes. of the story. And I think that's, that's hard to, to do as well mm. as we did. Mm. And does it really audience questions about the Hajj exhibition or about the presentation? With all the um, knowledge and expertise that you gained during doing the exhibition, I was wondering whether you were considering touring the version of it. Mm. You know, because for, for any individual museum attempting to do something like that, it would be such a, a huge undertaking. I was wondering whether, in the same way that the British Museum has toured sort of pharaohs and Romans and, and Chinese material, whether you would consider. 
Well, in a sense, that's sort of what we've done at the, at the moment. I mean, I just touched on it briefly at the, at the end, with recognising that this was too complicated as an exhibition in itself to tour because of the number of lenders and that. Um, we came up with this sort of intellectual property package, which, just, which does allow these other venues to actually take the story how, how they, they want to. Now, there's no reason why... Um, I mean, anybody can do a Hajj exhibition, actually, because, because you know, it's like m modules and a jigsaw, and you can put it, put it to, together. So I think, I mean, what would, you know, it's such, it's such an evocative subject, really, that, you know, there's no reason why, you know, museums outside London couldn't do versions of it using their own objects, working with their, with their, with their, with their communities. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the trick, I, I mean, the thing that is really challenging, actually, is to, you have so much more freedom when you do, I'm sure all of us working in museums, you have so much more freedom, freedom when you're working on a temporary exhibition. When you're working on a gallery and trying to think about, you know, what were the lessons we learnt from doing the Hajj exhibition and maybe transferring that or thinking about other elements of that that you could put into a gallery, that becomes actually much, much more difficult. Any other question you'd like to talk to? Well, I was going to say, we do, we do have in store um, at the DNA objects that are, weren't in the exhibition which are to do with the hatch. So, you know, they're, and I think it's probably the same with you, isn't it? So, I mean, yes. we, we've, uh, and obviously part of the purpose of this meeting is to help people to understand Absolutely. what collections they've got. So maybe uh, other, there are lots of these objects out there. Absolutely. Um, so it might be a good idea to, you know, if someone's interested, then we can certainly supply them with a list of the things that they could want. Yes, yes. I think that would be actually incredibly useful because, you know, it is one of the things I'd said there is this Hudge legacy curate, curatorship up for grabs. Um, and, um, you know, that is actually something that that person could, could be yeah, useful to. Things doing. like uh, yeah. metal, uh, gilt, copper, um, type of ewer, which is a special type of ewer because it has screwing thing for the spout, uh, which is uh, for bringing zamzam water home. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've got spare um, Kibler compasses and things like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I think... Yeah. We've got a question at the back. Yeah, I, I just want to look more uncomfortable audiences because there's a reference to the people who did ECLG didn't want to talk to. And I just wonder if, um, <laughs> well, it's not comfortable myself about the fact that there are people we're not supposed to talk to as museums. Mm -hmm. But did you know if some of those communities then did come to the exhibition and did they respond? Yeah, I don't think it's a matter of that we're not supposed to talk to them. I think it's such a sensitive issue trying to mobilise the UK Muslim community in terms of really being able to understand it as well. And it took a long time to come to grips with um, the, the diaspora and also... Um, the, the politics within that diaspora is, is very difficult to come to terms with. And um, so it's not that we, we shouldn't talk to them, it's that we actually chose not to. Um, and I think it's savvy um, sometimes. And it's a very sensitive issue. Um, I think it's, it, you must be savvy to the fact that there's interpolitics um, and there's things to think about in terms of you're talking to one group, but are you talking to another? Um, you're talking to both groups, but are you talking to somebody else? And that becomes a very, very complicated relationship. Yeah, but except I'm coming from an minority community, and sometimes a lot of this division is made from external, made externally, and, and done by authority. And my question is whether or not, as museums, within something like this, we should be 
evolve and perpetuating that? No, I mean, I, I agree to some extent that we, we ought to have a blanket approach. We shouldn't pick and choose. At the same time, this is coming from DCLG, this is coming from FCO, that there, there are areas in which you should be aware of. Um, the prime example I'd give without actually getting into a sticky situation is that there, there are organizations unfortunately and actually Muhammad Ali we I think you almost hinted at it there are elements of the community that are unfortunately it, it's our responsibility to be able to almost educate I suppose that's it's not probably the right word but be able to communicate with more effectively unfortunately those communities do exist um, and as an institution, we ought to be aware of that. And again, I received guidance at every point. We didn't make any decisions without receiving <coughs> government guidance on that. Mm. Are there any more questions for us? I've got one for Salma, which I'd like to ask. But have you any more questions for Kesra or Manisha? Mm. Hello. Hello. Um, I, thought, I felt that the um, Jamil Prize guidelines are very interesting because they almost echoed the, um, the original mandate that the museum had to influence contemporary design by reference to um, an Asian design tradition. And I was wondering, to what extent do you think that the Jamil Prize guidelines do echo the original design mission of V&A or South Kensington Museum as it was in the start? Yeah. I'm just thinking with that whether it's, I can talk about how we're trying to incorporate design much more now into the rubric of, of, the, um, of the Jamil Prize, but it might be useful to hear from Tim how when you first started having those conversations with um, Abdul Latif Jamil Community Initiatives that came into it. But in terms of um, the nomination system, uh, we've made a point really over the last year of actually inviting many more nominators that come from a design background because we noticed from the 2011 prize that the submissions that were coming in from designers were fewer and perhaps not the best standard. And so um, even in, in the kind of choice of the judges, this, this for 2013 we had Thomas Heatherwick, we had Huda Abi Ferris who's the director of Khat Foundation, which is a network of designers. So we've noticed, actually, funnily enough, even though it hasn't been announced, but the 2013 shortlisted uh, shortlist has, you know, many much more much more diverse material and also many more designers. And we've we've had to have a lot of these conversations about, you know, how does typography, how does fashion design also sit within that? And it was it was a difficult system, um, the shortlist itself, and and the sort of the judging panel was also difficult to try and. Compare compare fine art with design as well. So we've had, we're kind of working our way through that. But Tim, do you want to talk yeah, about basically this? Basically, when we were promoting the um, Jamil Gallery, um, I think, Rebecca, you were saying earlier that it was good to be able to describe why the Birmingham Islamic Collection exists. So that's what we did. We have a very, uh, we have a very clear um, source of the collection, which is when the museum was set up in 1852, uh, it was set up because there was believed to be a crisis in British industrial design. Uh, the French were much better at it than us. That's basically the problem. And so um, the group round Henry Cole, the first director, included Owen Jones, who was the, probably the person in Britain who knew most about Islamic art because of his work on the Alhambra. Um, and so... Uh, he, he actually provided a sort of ideological input which said that uh, Islamic art was basically the best form of decorative art. And if you attended the principles behind Islamic art, you would actually improve 
British industrial design. Mm. And so it had a very practical um, beginning. And of course, you know that in, in its origins, the V&A was a very populist institution with lots of working men coming and women coming here. Of course, it's always referred to as working men in the 19th century sources. And um, it, it did have a, a very large effect on design in the second half of the 19th century. So that when, by the end of the century, we've got Merlin Morris, who is the greatest designer in the world and who loves is Islamic art. Um, so that's, that's really the, the thing that... So I was going on about that, and Mr. Jamil responded to it, um, I think. I mean, I've never asked him about that, but it, it seemed to come out of it that he then decided that we should bring that uh, tradition back to life by looking at the way that contemporary art and design, which he knew about, um, was actually doing the same thing. It was using the Islamic traditions of the past to create something um, good, and relevant for today. Mm -hmm. So it's about modern art, but there's still this sort of reference yeah. point. Can I, make, can I actually make another Absolutely. point? Absolutely, yes. Because yeah. it did occur to me that in, these, in, these, in this uh, meeting, it might be uh, a good thing to point out that when you know, I was the person who was told by Mr. Jamil I could do this prize, um, but in those, in, uh, as, as long ago as 2006-07, it was at the number of the curatoriate between the British Museum and the V&A consisted of Venetia, me, Mariam, and Sheila Candy, I think. So that's, that's quite a few people, and only one of us had actually done anything about uh, contemporary art to do anything with the, the Middle East or South Asia, and that was Venetia. So actually, the beginning of the Jamil Prize is me going and working with Venetia. Uh, and Venetia suggesting um, someone called Camilla Cagliettes, uh, who works with somebody else called Anne Jones. They both used to work for the British Council. And they were the people who had, and I had the background where they could actually work out how to solicit nominations. So I just wanted to say that, because you know, at the beginning, the V&A knew absolutely nothing. And it's because of um, Venetia's help, and then especially Camilla's help, they were actually able to create the prize. And so I, I hope that's a model that everybody can understand and that it really works. And of course, that is the same model um, which brought about the Light from the Middle East exhibition downstairs, because the Venetia had done all the work with uh, Word, in, Word into Art. Yeah. Is that the last Yeah, that was cool. Yeah. Um, which is about contemporary calligraphy. Um, and so the, it was the art fund actually approached her. And so then she approached us because we had the National Collection of the uh, Art of Photography. And so we got some expertise in our photography, well, a lot of expertise in our photographs department. So Venetia and me a little bit were able to work with photographs here to produce a collection um, that actually had some, uh, you know, it, it was made with some sort of information. We also it helped a lot by Rose Issa, who's a, mm. um, a gallerist uh, from outside. So I mean, these things are um, are all created jointly uh, by discussing it with your colleagues, because the area we're trying to cover is enormous, mm. and um, you know that's that's one of the so that's the way we work uh, between these national institutions. So. What we want to do is we're happy to do that with other people as well. Definitely. Thanks. We got any more questions which you might like to ask of Simon? Because I'm aware that we're racing towards tea time. But I'm also aware that I really want to ask the Muhammad a question. Um, so I'll. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Mr. Please. Um, you touched on a very important uh, point, I think, that you said, you know, often um, the, the Muslim. Yeah, or, or the Muslim population and the young people are not aware of the artistic tradition that exists. Um, um, and how, how do you 
you think you, you, you can achieve to bring them nearer to a tradition that is very important, has contributed to the whole world, but they don't, either they're not aware of or they don't take much interest of because they're not, they don't know anything about it. Um, I think it, they're not aware of is, is probably the answer. Um, because from my experience when I'm working with them, I, I see the excitement mm. in, within them when mm. they discover a lot of this. Mm. So there's no doubt about it that for, for other reasons they're not discovering this. Whether that, how do we deal with that? Yeah. Um, and I don't have the answer, but I would probably say one of those is being, is, is um, um, educating them through, mm. you know, having more like British museums as exhibition and those young people, I was trying to bring a whole lot of schools, I know they, you filled out your spaces eventually with the schools, right? But I was trying to, uh, many of the schools, I really was encouraging them, they must go and see this, this will open their eyes, other, collect, other exhibition that are on, encouraging them to go along and see this. So just educating through that, and I probably would also say within the community, what I'm also trying to do is, through the organisations that operate, like some of the ones that uh, Kaiser was mentioning that they'd approached. I think on that level as well, let, you know, trying to get them on board to encourage and, and even if it's getting them to um, see if it's about kind of community development, see the arts as a as a means to do just that. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of the organisations are constantly trying to you know dealing with these whole issues of community cohesion and engaging and integration, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, let them see the power of the arts mm. or. or or you know, exhibitions and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, as a way to do just that to to help them communicate that we are a community that mm. that want to engage. Um, so I, I'd probably say within the community that education is required as well. So I'm I'm constantly trying to meet with key mm. people within the community, mm. whether it's influential people. This economic forum I'm going to tomorrow in Malaysia. Mm. You know, I'd be keen to kind of be talking to to the right people to say. <coughs> Recognize the arts as a way to do mm. to do that. Yeah, um, I think that's a really important point, mm. especially I mean, the most important thing that you can tell young people about museums, which they mm. really don't remember, is that it's their stuff. Mm. Yeah. It's theirs. These are mm. public collections. They're not only for middle-aged mm. you know, people on the weekend. They're 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 theirs. They really yeah. can yeah. lay claim to them. They can enjoy them and feel proud of them. And, right. You know, yeah. they belong to them. What I really finish with. Like no, it was just to contributing to that. I mean, isn't uh, I mean, you know, there are museums, you know, all, all around the country with these incredible collections, and and often, you know, there are issues of funding, taking people to the, to to taking the kids to the museums and so on. And it'd just be nice to hear from. Um, you know, colleagues in other museums, to what extent, you know, do you work with the communities? I don't know, Bristol, Birmingham, we have Brighton, I don't know. Um, I mean, that's often the point, isn't it? It's actually bringing these two groups of, you know, you don't have to bring them to London, you know, you've probably got them on your doorstep, in fact. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I personally have an experience I'm Iranian, I'm a Muslim, but I, and I do often gallery talks, for example, in our coin gallery, um, it's, you can catch their attention as long as you describe something in a within a religious framework. But as soon as you um, drift into sort of an artistic context, even if it is within Islamic art, they lose their attention and they become very critical and sort of 
uh, confront you. So it's not an easy, yeah. it's not an easy matter. I mean, I wonder how Nura feels mm -hmm. about it in the barrel collection. Yeah, we we have. Uh, I mean, this is the downside of the difficult side. Um, I find with the issue of figurative imagery. Yeah. There That's is a thing, yeah. big resistance from the Muslim community in confronting the fact that figurative imagery has existed in Islamic art from day one, despite the theological position on it. And, in, and, there, and this resistance, this worry or kind of disappointment that they realize there is this is Islamic, uh, there is this figurative imagery, becomes the barrier to trying to understand, well, why is there if the theology says otherwise? And, and, and that's my kind of battle, is to try and get beyond that barrier, to try and just get them to understand why it is. It doesn't mean they have to engage in it, or approve of it, or disapprove, but knowing is important, then you can decide which side you want to take, and that is a major issue. Um, with all, I'm sure, the collections that um, most museums have, especially the older uh, material, uh, it's, it's full of figurative art. So mm -hmm. there are other topics. Uh, the Shia and Sunni issue mm -hmm. is another one. It touches on a lot of modern prejudices, mm -hmm. and they don't want to learn about each other. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> For political or uh, etc. reasons, that are contemporary. Yeah, yeah, here is the opportunity. Mm. You have the material. There's even a problem in presenting the Quran, because uh, if you if you try to, to present the Quran manuscripts, for example, uh, over over time, and you suggest that that uh, aspects of them were formulated at a relatively late date, uh, some people are very shocked because they think that the canonical form is canonical form uh, is canonical, and therefore it must always have this existed. So it must be original, they see it yeah. in, in, in you know because it. The Quran exists outside time. It must be immutable, mm -hmm. and to put it in a historical context is actually uh, difficult for them to get yeah. their head around. Yeah. Can I just add? I, I think um, there's one exception which I, I need to work for you guys. I think uh, with the British Museum and the Hajj exhibition, I think there's a formula there that really works that I've not seen before. That how I was seeing, and I saw, I witnessed, and recognised people even that were there that you think that you've done something right there because you've engaged the most conservative of Muslim audiences that, that, see, that were present, that I would be like, you, you come from a, a Wahhabi mosque, what's a mosque is described as Wahhabi, why are you here? There was figurative art depicted um, at your, yeah, at, at, the, at the exhibition. So there's something there that they still manage to draw those people yeah. that you would think, how do they do that? So I think there's some careful study of what was that formula and how what what was what went right there? We're uh, not sure what that formula was. <laughs> <laughs> to tell you the truth, <laughs> I, I think you're right. Um, there is definitely a successful element, but you that, that was about a very important topic in the life of all Muslims. It was that was the key. But in the, the these people uh, have something in common with all these objects that are on display and I notice that often when they come and you talk to them they suddenly switch off when it moves from the religious aspect of a, an object to a historical and pictorial 
description. And I think that's something that the Muslim community from within has to work on. That's, that's my opinion. Is that because people sort of begin to engage with new material based on what they know already, what they feel comfortable with investigating? And that generally that's when, if you're going to a museum, there's a lot to take on board, and people want to investigate something which they've already got a foothold on. Do you think? Yes, I think you know the religious teachings are there. Yeah. The religious got uh, foundation yeah. is there, yeah. but you don't necessarily put the artistic tradition into context and don't see it as the tradition of the same as the written word. And the but doesn't it depend to who you're talking to? Because if you're talking to Iranians and no, you have no, 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 I'm just. I'm just saying, if you've got, uh, you're looking at Shahnameh, for example, yeah. then of course everyone will link to that. Or if you've got, you know, an Arab Muslim and you're mm. looking at something which mm. is connecting, you know, mm. to their own to their mm. own heritage and mm. and past. So I think often we think of, you know, the Muslim community as one thing, which is called the Muslim community. I mean, isn't it the case that you know people, you know, from these different different groups of people coming from all over the world with their own historical traditions and literary traditions, you know, are bringing that to what it is that they're, that they're seeing. I, I've noticed that there is, you know, and, and I think it's because of the pro uh, political propaganda in the Western world that there is a huge um, reaction to anything that is about Shiism by the Muslim uh, visitors and I find that very difficult because even if you're a Shia and you hear about Sunnism you should be interested I mean it's part of your tradition and vice versa and I think this is where politics come into it there is so much uh, indoctrination and so much division created that people feel oh I'm a Sunni I don't want to have anything to do with Shiism or I'm a Shia I don't want to have anything to do with Sunnism that, that mm. I find very disturbing, actually. I think some of it, it's very complicated. I've, in the past <laughs> 10 years, I've reflected a lot on it. Part of it is the social and cultural background of the individuals. Uh, some of the immigrants come from rural societies. Some come from urban. And there's a difference between Muslims coming from rural societies mm. and urban ones. There's also which part of the Islamic world uh, and, and what was their exposure to their own cultures. Second and third generation British Muslims' exposure to what we call the you know, homeland cultures is so very different to their grandparents and what they think they know about their grandparents' cultures is so very different than the reality. It's usually a sanitized, idealized, uh, 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 full of reminiscences, but there isn't the real um, uh, contact. And then there is uh, the, the, the religious agenda, the, the indoctrination, the, the way we learn our religion as Muslims, uh, which is different than other religions learn their religion. And so uh, confronting things that don't conform to what you've learned uh, is an issue. And the more important than all these is this is generalization and stereotyping, but I, I have to say it is, in general, mm, the majority are uh, non-museum visitors by culture. They um, experience their cultures in different ways, not in necessarily in the preservation of the material culture the way a Western mm -hmm. culture does. So 
what we keep from the past today that none of the um, ancestors would have kept. I mean, how many families in the Islamic world have objects from the 13th century? Never mind public institutions. They revamp them and refurbish them. So there's such a disconnection with the real material culture that comes from 500 years ago. I have to remind my Muslim uh, audiences when I do a gallery talk, when we get to the uh, lusterwares, the Kashan lusterwares, that Seljuk Iran was Sunni and, and, and not Shia because as soon as they see, I say Kashan and I say Iran, they dismiss the figurative art as being, oh, the Shia do it. They're more liberal and they kind of paint and draw and they've got pictures of it. Imam Hussein and Imam Ali and no one knows, you know. And so they calm themselves down their fears by attributing it to a minor sect's <laughs> habits. And then I remind them the Sajuks were Sunnis and Iran was not a Shia country at all, <laughs> much, much later. <laughs> and then they are really disturbed because. Arguments and discussions which museums have to flush out. And I think mm, that's great. Yeah. But what I love mm. about Muhammad Ali's work is that it bypasses yeah. the whole sort of feeling or emotion mm. people have about museums. Exactly. It's not in a museum. Exactly. You don't have to get around people's issues mm -hmm. about stepping into you know, a temple fronted building, mm -hmm. which is sort of the refreshing part of it. You sort of avoid all of the issues about curating, pigeonholing, labeling, mm -hmm. and just sort of go directly to everyone walking by, which is obviously the most open mm. demographic you can possibly have. Now, we've run into tea time, so um, let's all take a break and hopefully continue conversations and discussions.